Welcome to the AIA Buzzworthy Analytics Podcast, where we provide an update on economic indicators and discuss the data-driven look ahead. Yeah, so today we're going to give an update on macroeconomics. We will talk about uh, natural gas, power, and the impact of the winter storm on Texas, and also the impact of the winter storm on industry, specifically the oil and gas industry. And afterwards, we're going to have a fun topic for you guys. Uh, yes, towards the end of the program, we're going to talk about the, the latest winner of the Ig Nobel Prize in economics, who uh, studied the strange and surprising correlation between income inequality and the average amount of mouth-to-mouth kissing. Oh, fun stuff. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that's more interesting than the boring economics, but let's start with the boring economics because it impacts everything. So let's start with GDP. So according to the advanced estimate released in January uh, 2021 by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, U.S. GDP grew by 4% during Q4 2020, and this was after registering a record 33.4% Q over Q growth during Q3. Now, the economy continues to expand, albeit slower, as activity gradually moderates after the, Q, the Q3 surge. Consumer spending declined significantly towards the end of the quarter, towards the end of the year, especially in December. Retail sales registered a month-over-month drop in December, and non-farm payroll growth turned negative for the first time since April. Now, this was at the end of 2020, but we have signs of vast improvements for 2021. For instance... Spending by consumers who make less than $60,000 a year jumped by more than 20% in a week ending January 10th of this year, the week after the U.S. Treasury Department began electronically sending stimulus payments of $600 per adult and $600 per child for individuals with adjusted gross incomes under $75,000. This was according to an article written by the Wall Street Journal, but the research was by Opportunity Insights Tracker. Now, spending by households making above $100,000 by contrast was broadly flat compared to the same period in 2020. Now, if you are, um, let's talk about consumer spending. It's about 60 to 70 percent, about 70 percent of GDP And if you're not spending uh, due to the pandemic, then you're probably savings. And so we have a huge savings uh, amount here in the U.S. due to the uh, COVID-19 impact. So let's talk about consumer spending, household income, the amount Americans received from wages, investments, and government programs rose 10% in January from the previous month. The Commerce Department said this past Friday, what was that, February 26th? The increase was the second largest on record, eclipsed only by last April's gain when the federal government sent an initial round of pandemic relief payments. Household income has risen 13% since February 2020, the month before the pandemic shut down large segments of the economy. So this is pretty interesting. We have a lot of savings. We, we're not spending, but we, when we are spending, we're spending on large, big-ticket items. And so uh, this is pretty interesting for the economy. And we're getting ready for another $1.9 trillion stimulus that was approved by President Biden. Yeah, Ben, to your point, if you look at the December 2020 versus 2019 uh, consumer expenditures, we see that uh, you know services are actually down 5.4%, uh, which, which makes a fair amount of sense as the pandemic is still keeping people uh, uh, at home, indoors, and so forth. But spending on durable goods is up 11%, and non-durable goods up 2.5%. So as you said, we're, we're, we're spending, and we're spending on big, larger ticket type of expenditures. Yeah. Now let's talk about unemployment. Absolute employment came in relatively flat. So it was just up 49,000 jobs in January 2021. Um, and that is after a about 140,000 job decline in December. And so while it is a, a positive trend, it is still, it, we're still absolutely down. 
So the unemployment rate fell by 0.4% to 6.3%, according to the BLS. But the Fed came out with a a comment, you know, a couple days ago where they had said that their anticipated, their estimated actual unemployment rate was was still up around 10%. Um, And we're still not expecting to see employment rates, unemployment rates being below 4% until like the 2025 range. So it's likely that we see heightened unemployment for, for a bit of the, uh, a bit of the long run here. What was that last statistic, the difference, the, the 10% that the BLS had? Yeah. So the adjusted, um, or so it was the, the federal reserve. So Janet Yellen came out with some Mm -hmm. comments and she had mentioned that while our official unemployment rate today is 6.3%, she believes that that number is to be as high as 10% um, due to people exiting the labor force permanently or, or temporarily, discouraged workers being a large part, a large part of that. Wow. So uh, notable gains occurred in the professional and business services across the spectrum. But leisure, hospitality, and hospitality continue to reel under the pandemic. The pace of improvement in the labor market has moderated in recent months as economic activity growth starts to flatten out. So the labor participation rate, as we had said, was unchanged at 61.4%, and the employment to population ratio increased by 0.2 percentage points to 57.5. And so that number is notable because a 57.5% the employment to population rate, we haven't seen numbers that low since like the 80s or before. And at that point, the makeup, your your actual participation makeup was significantly different. So you had um, single income families being more economically viable and you had a much lower female participation rate in, in the labor market at that point as well. Now, every time, and I think we talked about this last month, but every time we have a recession, it's um, we do have a lower participation rate, and it takes a very, very long time for the participation rate to to climb back up. But it's never, at least for the uh, during the Great Recession, it never got back to pre-recession levels. And I'm wondering about this one. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts about that? Well, it would be interesting to kind of see what that recovery would look like, but because we do have a, a lot of boomers who are getting to, um, a lot of baby boomers who are getting to the point uh, where they will choose to exit permanently. So we do have every year, we have a lot of individuals exiting the labor force because they are retiring. And so if they're forced to retire a little bit early, uh, those are individuals that we will not see come back to the labor force. Now, the labor participation rate, for those who uh, aren't familiar with that, these are people who um, are actively seeking a job and cannot, or what is the exact definition of the labor participation rate? So the this is the employment to population ratio. So that is the entire, I, th- I believe it's over 18. It's the, mm-hmm. the working age. So I think we just cut out children and... Up to 65? I believe so. I believe so. So it's everyone 18 to 65. Um, And yeah, obviously. So it's just the the actual number of employment divided by, you know, the working age. As opposed to people who are applying for unemployment, which is the official unemployment number. So that would be that 6.3% would be individuals who are actively searching for a job. And weekly, they're having to prove that they're searching for a job to be collecting benefits. Um, so that's why the number varies a lot because you have individuals who, you know, are, they're still searching, but they're not officially searching anymore. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics came out with a report on labor participation rate and uh, all of the um, things that go into it. And they also did a report on why it never really climbed back up during the, uh, the Great Recession. And so you had a lot of uh, women who decided to stay at home, so the labor participation rate for women went down. Then you also had a lot of, uh, you had an increase in disability. Um, So, um, you know, for whatever reasons, that increase and that uh, caused the labor participation rate to also go um, come down. And then you also had other instances where you had maybe one parent who didn't have to work 
and decided to stay home. And so these were uh, lost uh, people. And so the, um, and so it, anyway, if, if you read that report, it's, it's on their website. And so these are all the reasons why the labor particip participation rate decreased and never really went back up. Uh, and I'm just curious to see what's going to happen this time. So you bring up an interesting point as well. And so last week I was kind of looking into the data and I was playing with the numbers. And it looked like 55% of those who had exited the labor force permanently were women and 45% were male. So that was actually a spread. I was I was anticipating a larger proportion right. of women making up, up making up that number. So I was I was shocked to see that there was only a, you know, couple point difference between the two. Yeah, I bet that's probably, compared to periods in the past or past recessions, that's probably a relatively high proportion. Yeah, I would imagine so. It'd be interesting to see what that looks like. Now, uh, one thing I shared with you guys that I found really, really interesting, and this was an article by the Wall Street Journal, and so this showed that the U.S.'s blue-collar workforce has begun to benefit from a strengthening job market. And so this pretty much says that uh, due to construction and the housing and a housing boom that a lot of uh, blue-collar workers um, the workforce is actually stronger than it was pre-pandemic levels and so I'm wondering that if a lot of uh, blue-collar workers that are uh, being let go in industries such as the oil and gas industry which is hurting right now due to people not flying and not driving to Disneyland um, so maybe they're just switching, switching industries, and they're going to where what's much needed, where uh, we do have a housing need, and so there's a, there's a huge boom in construction at the moment. Yeah, sure. It's the, it's the housing and the other kind of durable goods. Again, we saw that durable goods boost, and we're seeing that the, the labor markets and the commodity markets in those areas are very, very strong right now. So, yeah, it stands to reason that all those people who are being displaced from other jobs, that they're going to find an area there where there's some growth. And, and, and we could clearly see that areas of growth include um, maybe not just housing, but also maybe the food industry. I mean, I know that during the pandemic, you know, the truckers and the warehousing and, and trying to get the food to the grocery stores where, you know, we may not be getting the food from the restaurants, but we still have to get food for our, our kitchens. And so that's, um, that's not going to go away. And if anything, maybe it increased, um, because we would normally go to our favorite restaurants or, um, so yeah, yeah. A lot of things like that. That's pretty interesting. And, and just, just to summarize, um, the employment and residential construction package, package delivery and warehousing now exceeds pre-pandemic levels. Before we, uh, we jump into okay. that, I just want to touch on a little more. I thought it would be uh, worthwhile to talk about a trend that we're seeing lately. Uh, we can start with the Purchasing Managers Index. Uh, we're seeing that it's down slightly from, from December. The January reading came in at 58.7, but this is the eighth consecutive month of steady growth that we're seeing and significant growth uh, coming out of the Purchasing manager side. Uh, and, and also in the non-manufacturing index, we have 58.7, the same number. Uh, this is actually up somewhat from the, the previous month, but again, we're seeing eight consecutive months of growth in these, these indicators of, of business activity, manufacturing and the services sectors. And this, uh, I think what's interesting about that is it's, it's, it's raising the specter, even though we've seen consumer price indexes right now are tepid and not very fearful of inflation, but uh, the markets are starting to pick up on the fact that inflation may be a threat or a worry that we have to be concerned about. Uh, and so we talked about interest rates. The Federal Reserve released its January 26th and 27th meeting uh, minutes on February 17th with the indication that a lot needs to be done to get the economy back on track. Um, so it's a loose but constructive economic policy of near zero rates and minimum asset purchases of $120 billion monthly. Uh, that's going to be the course going forward. Uh, that has had some repercussions into the bond markets. Uh, over the past week or two, we've seen uh, heavy selling in the bond markets, tepid demand at treasury auctions, 
and we've seen the, the benchmark 10-year Treasury yield go up to 1.5% or so at the end of February, up from 0.9% at the start of the year. Uh, at the same time, we're seeing another market-based measure of concern of inflation coming out. The, uh, the five-year break-even between the, basically the spread between normal treasuries and the treasury inflation-protected securities, which have a uh, kind of a, a uh, which indicates kind of the market's fear for inflation, uh, hit its highest level since 2011 at 2.4%. And so I think this is the, the, the first glimmer we've seen after having this very expansive, easy monetary policy for a very long time, near zero interest rates, and no inflation has peaked its head around the corner. Uh, but we're starting to see the markets wake up to the fact that, uh, that, that all this spending may have repercussions on asset prices. Yes, uh, Stephen. So I'm also uh, I was looking at this data before, and I'm I'm a student of history, like we all are. And before, when we had a loss of expansion, inflation showed up. Like when you look World War One, World War Two, when you look at Zimbabwe, when you look at Venezuela, inflation showed up as food prices going up and like stuff that people needed. But now in the United States, we're going through a big time of inflation. But maybe they're like controlling the food prices and like the stuff that, so it doesn't seem to the regular people that everything is like heavily inflated and if we are living in a current bubble, that might crash. But when you look at markets, like you see how, like when you look at our report for the EIA, everything is going up. So we're clearly on inflation, but then people are putting their money or they're buying or the prices are going up in other things that is hard for it's hard to see if you if you don't look at the numbers like that yeah absolutely in, inflation is a hard uh, number to measure because you're trying to capture the prices of literally everything in the economy on some kind of weighted basis uh, but if you look at, kind of anecdotally at the different uh, components of inflation uh, lately it's been fairly stable with energy prices remaining at a relatively low level and that's a, a huge component of most inflation indices. Uh, but we're seeing it in other places. The price of lumber, I think, has doubled over the past year. Uh, we're, we're in commodities in general. We're seeing anything related to the, the manufacturing sector, the areas of the economy that are showing some growth right now. We're seeing those prices increase. And uh, the, I guess the, the overriding concern or the, the big picture thought is that with the government continuing to pump so much money into this economy, uh, once that starts to translate into more strong spending by the consumers, is that really just going to lift the price for everything at that point? Well, I have a question for you. So, how much of that, um, how much of that price increase would be a price correction from a lot of these depressed, this depressed pricing that we've seen over the past year? No, that's a, that's a great question. Um, when we talk about certain commodities, things like lumber or um, the, the commodity prices never really went through that, that collapse, except for, well, with the, the obvious example of crude oil, uh, which, which fell apart and then, then staged a fairly quick recovery. Uh, a lot of the other basic commodities had maybe a one-month blip as we dealt with the fact that the pandemic was hitting in March and uh, have largely kind of come back to a more normal environment. Now, speaking broadly here, of course, there's a lot of detail in, in each individual commodity, but... Uh, I think we're past the point now in most uh, most commodities where we could say that uh, this is about getting back to pre-pandemic levels. And so now we're just continuing to, to rise. And uh, so, yeah, so that's the, the concern for the future. It's pretty dangerous. Appreciate that, Stephen. Thank you so much. And this is a good segue to our financial update. Um, so, Adam, do you, can you give us a quick update on uh, interest rates and, stock, and stocks, stock prices? Sure thing. So, uh, you know, it was a relatively quiet month for uh, January, not much really deviated from the Fed's policy in terms of interest rates. Uh, Chairman Powell is pretty adamant about, about, you know, containing inflation for the short term and keeping rates at a very low level. Very little opposition to that at this point. Fed is still committed to its $120 billion asset purchase uh, campaign month to month. Uh, But yeah, I mean, for the short term right now, we're just really seeing the Fed trying to mitigate interest rates in terms of, um, you know, stimulating 
the economy during the pandemic, but um, also just keeping inflation in check. I think it's going to be some time before we actually see any sort of changes to this policy. And it will just be really contingent on, you know, the vaccine rollout, uh, how much we deviate from uh, what we saw last year in terms of, uh, you know, the economic trajectory. Uh, you know, and going along with that with foreign exchange rates, not really much happened. There was a lot of optimistic data at the first half of uh, January 2021, uh, you know, saw some good gains with some of the Asian currencies. Uh, however, in the second half of the month, we saw a sort of a reverse course just on poor economic data. Uh, as it comes to stock indices, you know, uh, really this was a huge pivot point. Uh, we saw a lot of volatility in the market, especially after the uh, whole GameStop sort of retail investor uh, induced volatility in the markets, you know, really just sent sent uh, you know returns across the board just you know really in opposite directions and just really created sort of an unprecedented environment uh, in terms of you know equity purchases and whatever else and so uh, you know you know uh, most most of the indices just did not perform uh, as well as they have been but uh, you know pretty tame for the most part it's just you know that short stab and volatility really uh, hit home there. Uh, and, and, you know, that transitions pretty well to the, the whole uh, VIX environment right now, the the volatility index. You know, we actually did see a few points uh, higher this time around. This was after about a four to five month decrease in the, in the VIX. Uh, again, just really pivoting around a lot of the um, sort of ad hoc retail investors just trying to uh, sort of manipulate the market and going against other more institutional traders in the space. Um, so we did see a, you know, a hike in the VIX during that time. Uh, you know, and, and just to close, you know, on uh, treasury yields, we've, we've sort of seen a mixed environment right now. And a lot of that's pivoting off of President Biden's uh, stimulus package, the $1.9 trillion that's uh, been pushed through uh, Congress at this point. And uh, uh, looks like we'll be committed in the in the short term. Yeah, I saw a lot of the long-term bond rates are starting to go back up now, uh, while the short-term rates are pretty much uh, left in check right now. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what uh, we're seeing on the uh, financial markets front right now. You mentioned something really interesting that we might be already uh... – What's the word? Uh, or how, how do you Americans say it? Killing the dead horse? Beating the dead horse? <laughs> GameStop. I think everybody YouTubed it. I think everybody knows what a short is. Uh, shorting the market. Um, I think at this point, probably not worth talking about. But um, if any of you guys just want to, before we close the financial section, if you guys want to just make a funny comment about what happened, what say you? I just love that it's still going on. Uh, we, we've seen GameStop continue to have this wild volatility up and down, and there are still true believers out there who, who for, for no other reason other than to stick it to the man, they're buying it. Well, but if you look at uh, GameStop, if you look at the data, I don't know if anyone has, but they have really small debt. They mainly own more most of their locations. Like, yeah, the product that they're selling is updated, but... There's no, I don't, that's why, that's, that's how the internet found out because there's no way why this company should be shorting GameStop because it makes sense. Like people are still going to have to buy consoles eventually. So that's how the boom started because they were like the PFIs is coming up. They're not buying video games because video games now they go directly to your console from the manufacturer. So they're getting more vertically integrated. But people still buy the consoles, and it's a place for you to trade consoles. So you get an old one and a new one. And I guess, like, the Internet found out, and they just, like, made a big deal. Like, the market is decentralized. So I feel like these waves are going to come again and keep happening. So now the people that control the media are going to have more power because anyone can just grab their phone and, like, buy a quick stock real quick, you know. So now the market is, has way more little moving pieces to analyze before you do something. So when's the last time you've been to a GameStop? <laughs> yeah. It's a viable business. Yeah, when's the last time you used it? Yeah, you know, 
Yeah. And, you know, just to go off of that uh, piece is, you know, we, we, I think we are starting to see this whole move of a, you know, democratization of finance, as you will. Uh, we're starting to see easier access to capital, um, better opportunities to le- leverage trades in the market. And really just because information is just so disseminated much faster that this time around, you know, these institutional investors are, are having to keep, um, you know, some of this in check. But at the same time, we're also starting to see the rise of the uh, individual retail investor. And, you know, putting that in large numbers, we're going to start seeing a very mixed market, I'd say, moving moving forward. It was really interesting at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw this massive growth in what you're saying is those retail investors. Uh, you had a lot of people with free time. If they, either they were working from home or they were, you know, maybe looking for a job at that point, you saw a lot of people entering the market at that point, which was an interesting use of personal income, especially. So it was, uh, it, we've definitely seen a large shift. Yeah, Americans are becoming more financial savvy now. Well, and there are these platforms now like Robinhood, which which sort of make it more accessible to people who historically haven't been huge participants in the stock market. And so you are seeing this new generation come on board, uh, definitely to the, the chagrin of some of the hedge fund managers and some of the larger institutions out there. But it, it's also an interesting challenge for the SEC. Uh, you've get now got sort of the Reddit boards out there and people pumping up stocks and talking about that. But there's a there's a fairly dense regulatory set of rule book out there that you have to be careful about. And there are certain things you can't do, like get online and say, hey, everybody on Tuesday, let's buy this stock. Uh, those things are illegal. And so I think there's going to be a challenge for the regulators to sort out who they really want to go after in an environment like this. But I, I do expect there are going to be a lot of changes as we, as we go through this. With that, that ends our financial section. Uh, let's talk about our industrial section where we talk about, for this month, we are going to focus on natural gas, power, and the impact of winter storm. What, what was the name of the winter storm? Yuri? Yuri. Yes. Yuri. <laughs> I'm glad you had that at your fingertips. Yuri. So, yeah. Um, well, let's start with natural gas. So, what happened? Or should we start with power? What happened? Why did we lose power? I think it all starts with natural gas, even though you have people and who uh, might say it uh, blaming uh, blaming renewables. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, we heard some of that as soon as this. Uh, the, well, first of all, let's start with the facts of what happened, just so that maybe uh, we're reporting out of Houston. And for those who aren't, this may seem a little more distant, but for us, it was all very personal. Uh, so. Uh, um, the winter storm Yuri hit Texas a couple of weeks ago and knocked out power to most of the state. Uh, the Texas Tribune had an article this week saying that this outage may be the costliest disaster in state history, potentially exceeding the $125 billion of damage from Hurricane Harvey mm-hmm. back in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Ben, to, your, to answer your question, what was the underlying cause of this disaster? Well, yes, it got very cold. What happens when you get to these these uh, near zero temperatures, near zero degrees Fahrenheit temperatures, is um, you you affect the grid on a couple of different levels. You have power generation going offline, uh, different parts and pipes and so forth freeze up under the weather, and so we've had uh, generation capacity across the grid go down. It was natural gas, it was coal, it was wind. Uh, we even lost a nuke, uh, and so. While there has been a little bit of uh, politicizing about what this means about whether you need to have renewables or something or non-renewables on the grid, I think the the storm was fairly uh, um, by the way it knocked out uh, generators. Uh, but on top of knocking out the generators, kind of a, a knock-on or a, maybe even a worse effect was uh, this kind of cold weather also caused freeze-offs in the natural gas production system. So throughout Texas, we have production largely onshore now through uh, uh, shale gas wells. And these wells churn out a type of gas that we call it wet gas. It's it's got a lot of uh, um, uh, natural gas liquids in it. And so one of the troubles or one of the challenges with wet gas is when it gets very cold, uh, these, these heavier hydrocarbons tend to condense and freeze out. 
and so you can get freeze-offs in the pipes and it, it halts production. It can even cause serious damage. Uh, and so during this period in um, the peak of this winter storm, when demand for electric power was spiking, we need the electricity to heat homes. We also need the electricity to just do things like run your natural gas-fired heater, as was my problem. Um, just as that demand was spiking, we had a huge amount of natural gas production go off in the state. Uh, by some estimates, it was at its peak, more, uh, as much as half of the production in the state was frozen off. Uh, and so you, you had it on both sides. You couldn't get the gas, and even if you could get the gas, many of your generators were down. Uh, it, it had a ripple effect throughout the commodities market. So the natural gas prices were skyrocketing in the area. Uh, a commodity that typically trades below $3 per NMBTU uh, it hit record levels throughout the Midcontinent region. In, in Waha, West Texas, I think it hit something like $300. In Oklahoma City, it reached as high as $1,250, I believe. Uh, and these were records across the board. Uh, it created a huge uh, uh, kind of a log jam throughout the entire state, in fact, as we saw um, with traditionally the low-priced producing region have these spikes in prices. Uh, meanwhile, much of the country that is normally traditionally the demand center just didn't get hit as heavily. The prices went up, but nothing like these, these explosive prices you were seeing in the production region. And so a lot of natural gas transporters who are used to buying cheap gas in the producing region and selling it higher and the, in the demand basins, um, they got torqued up sideways on this trade, and it, it, it's created a lot of... Uh, uh, challenges out in the, the trading markets, out in the, the midstream sector as well. Uh, but coming back to what happened here in Texas, I, I think the repercussions of this are going to be interesting to watch. One of the, the big complaints about the way the system was handled was uh, the, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT. Uh, it's one of the few ISOs in the country that doesn't have an installed capacity market. Now, installed capacity, uh, having a market for installed capacity means you're basically paying generators in order to be available to generate electricity years in the future. And so if you have an ISO with a market like that, as most of the country does, then generators that maybe aren't economic to run on any given day, they, they still have an incentive to be there and available and up and running just in case they're needed. So ERCOT doesn't do that. They don't have a capacity market. And instead, they manage it with, with uh, surge pricing. Uh, and so there, they're trying to create an economic incentive that says, well, if the demand goes really high, then we can let the prices go really high. Uh, electricity normally trades 30 to $50 a megawatt hour. Uh, but in ERCON, on a peak day, you can go as high as $9,000. Uh, during the, this past uh, winter storm, the prices got as high as $1,200, which is you know, maybe below the peak, but still kind of in showing off that surge pricing. So what that's supposed to do is create this ridiculous incentive for generators to be there, and even if it's a, a very inefficient unit that would not normally compete, well, now they can run and they can make enough money to cover themselves for the whole year. But it didn't work because we don't have a capacity market, and so there was no uh, inefficient generation that was available. There was no backup generation uh, available to the grid at all. Arguably, the winter storm might have just knocked that out, too. <laughs> but uh, I, I think regardless of your opinion about whether uh, a capacity market is the right way to go, I think it's a certainty that as we go through sort of the, the legal repercussions of what happened the, with this, we're going to see uh, calls for uh, an installed capacity market in ERCOT. And if that comes to fruition, that could have some pretty, pretty large-scale impacts on the generation mix here in, in Texas. Uh, it, could, it could suddenly make economic a lot of things that were uh, kind of on their way out. You know, it may be fossil fuels, it may be coal generation, it may be uh, um, you know, the types of generators that run off of uh, residual fuel oil, which are usually used only in kind of these extreme circumstances. But we'll see. Can you touch on a little bit what um, ERCOT's position is and what makes Texas unique in terms of our grid? Because there's a lot of conversation around around that. Yeah, so so a lot of people refer to ERCOT as being one of the few places that's not on the, quote, national grid. And I mean, I guess there's some, uh, most of the other independent system operators have uh, inner ties that allow them to exchange electricity with, with kind of the other regions. 
And so there's a New York ISO that can communicate with the Midwest ISO, and, uh, and and I say communicate, they can pass power back and forth. So there's a lot of transmission across those. Uh, there There is almost none in the case of Texas, so it's more or less an isolated grid. Uh, a lot of people have used that as a sort of a, you know, called out that as a problem, too. And uh, anecdotally, I do have a friend who lives in a, a section of the woodlands, which for somewhat random reasons is set is served by the Midwest ISO, not by ERCOT, and he didn't lose power. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, there's probably some value to increasing the amount of interconnectivity between Texas and the rest of the national grid, uh, but I, I think the the complaints that we're hearing about ERCOT, it's more about just the, the lack of planning. Um, you know, when it gets very cold, we freeze off all the natural gas. Well, that actually happens all across the country. It normally gets to these temperatures up north uh, frequently, and there are ways to protect against that. You can wrap your pipes. You can put certain chemicals into your, your production system. So it, there are things that could have been done to be avoided. They just didn't do it because it didn't make economic sense here. And and I think a lot of the brunt of that is going to fall on ERCOT for, for failing to prepare for that. As someone pointed out, the, the R in ERCOT is reliability, and so I think mm-hmm. that's, that's sort of their one job. <laughs> and there's a lot of uh, changes that we could see. The first change that we uh, have seen already is that the board resigned, or most, most mm-hmm. of the board has yes. resigned. Right. This was uh, a huge embarrassment to uh, the leaders of ERCOT, um, also a huge embarrassment, uh, embarrassment to ERCOT itself but also um, wondering if there would be more regulation. Um, According to a Wall Street Journal, Texas electric bills were $28 billion higher under deregulation. Yeah, so this freeze also had really interesting implications to, you know, some of our refining markets. Uh, What are you seeing in terms of the refining and and kind of what are some of the situations that are downstream Mm -hmm. Well, yes, you know, I mean, uh, you know, just to add along with that, a lot of the refining capacity in the U.S. Gulf Coast region makes up significant amounts of total U.S. capacity. Uh, we just saw a lot of these uh, facilities just go offline because, uh, I mean, I think with the original intent of designing them, they just were not prepared for this type of weather, uh, you know, these types of weather conditions. Uh, we saw some of the major refiners in the U.S. Gulf region go offline, period of about a week. Uh, some of the units have restarted, but... You know, we're sort of seeing an expectation of units coming back online until, you know, possibly April or May. Uh, also with the, you know, projected um, rise in, you know, transportation fuel costs. So just because of limited supply is just really eaten away um, right now. But, um, but yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it was just the original tent was not there. Uh, you also had a lot of logistical issues, sort of transportation was locked up. You know, certain trucks couldn't make it. Uh, on the freeways, uh, rail cars were slowed down, and just a whole slew of other uh, production issues and transportation issues were sort of thrown into the mix. Uh, you know, we saw significant capacities of a lot of downstream chemicals come offline, uh, even some producers declaring force majeure and having to tell their customers, we just don't have product to produce, uh, you know, feedstocks to produce our products. And so that's kind of been the uh, the narrative right now that's that's been going on on the Gulf Coast, just simply because you know, once in a generation freeze was just that, you know, no one really truly anticipated weather conditions getting this bad for such a prolonged period of time. We saw that reflected in the refinery capacity utilization rates as well. We saw it drop down to 68.6%, which is, uh, that is a very low number. It's lower than we've seen ever. Yeah, I mean, we saw, you know, rates go all the way down to about utilization rates fall to about 65 percent at the height of the pandemic just based on lack of demand. And this time around, you know, we saw rates in early 2021 get up to the low 80 percent. So we saw a, a significant improvement from last year. But, you know, with with the winter storms just knocking out, you know, large facilities in the Gulf Coast region, uh, we saw that number dip back down, and you know it's it's really just going to be contingent on, you know, how these producers bounce back in the coming weeks. Now, the largest impact is going to be on the U.S. retail gasoline price. Uh, average prices have 
risen about 15 to 20 cents uh, over the past two weeks, uh, or maybe in some cases even more than that. So that will impact uh, the average American. But uh, for industrial purposes, we had already seen supply chain issues due to, to COVID-19. So on top of that, with uh, the winter storm, uh, we are seeing supply chain issues on top of supply chain issues. Um, can anybody elaborate more on that? Yeah, so the comments about um, a lot of this capacity not coming back online for uh, a number of weeks at least, so that April and May timeframe, that's due to, yes, you know, complications with our um, with supply just getting pipe and steel and, and people out to the sites to, to actually do these, um, to do a lot of these repairs. And so that is obviously also exacerbated by COVID-19. So there's still limitations to however many people can be on site at a time. Um, and then also just the supply chain issues that we've been seeing with manufacturing are still very much in full swing. So it is just, you know, a, a couple different layers of, of challenging market, market issues. Now, it was really cold here in Houston, and according to uh, data, it was the coldest temperatures for February in over or about 122 years, and that tells me that it was the coldest February on record. Um, so it was about 15, 16 degrees here in Houston, Texas, which we don't normally see during the winter. And we just weren't prepared for temperatures like that in Texas. And as I was talking to some friends in, um, up north in Minnesota and Montana, uh, as they were trying to communicate with people from, from Texas, they asked me, Ben, I can't communicate with a lot of people. Are you guys not working? And I said, we don't have power. And so she asked why. I said, we uh, have had a winter storm and temperatures were about 15 uh, degrees. And, uh, and the roads were iced and uh, we had a lot of infrastructure issues. She said, oh, yeah, yeah. Up here it was negative uh, 30 last week. So I, <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> now, the difference is that they are properly equipped because they... Um, are consistently at negative uh, 30 every uh, during times uh, during times during the winter every year. So it is expected. The difference is we do not expect temperatures below freezing for not more than a couple of days, and we do not invest in the um, uh, in the equipment to uh, to to prepare uh, for this because um, we would rather shut down for one day. Uh, and then start working uh, after roads are de-iced or, or when the temperatures go above freezing. It's just, that's Texas. And so this was um, a once in 100 years or once in 50 year uh, winter storm. So, and I say that because a lot of people up in the north make fun of us when we shut down for, for that one day. <laughs> so... Anyway, well, let's get to the fun stuff. We're almost at the end of our section uh, or session today. So today we have a fun, interesting topic. Thanks, Ben. So as we mentioned at the beginning of the program, we're going to dive into the research covered by Christopher D. Watkins and company. Uh, This was released in a recent uh, uh, article in the journal Nature. And the title of it is National Income Inequality predicts cultural variation in mouth-to-mouth kissing. And i just give you a, a rough uh, synopsis of the abstract first, and then we're really going to get into how on earth could this be. So they say romantic mouth-to-mouth cu- kissing is culturally widespread, although not universal, and may play a functional role in assessing partner health and maintaining long-term pair bonds. Uh, the appreciation of kissing may therefore vary according to whether the environment places a premium on good health and partner investment. Uh, Our data reveal that kissing is valued in more established relationships than it is valued during courtship, also consistent with the pair bonding hypothesis of the function of romantic kissing, relative poverty or income inequality predicts frequency of kissing across romantic relationships. 
when aggregated, this predicted relationship between income inequality and kissing frequency uh, has a correlation of 67% and is over five times the size of the correlations detected between, let's say, income inequality and cuddling. Okay, so any theories out there as to why that is? The authors seem to think that it has to do with, um, uh, let's see how they say that here. Uh, sorry, I know we can edit this part out. Mm -hmm. uh, the authors suggest that people in areas of greater inequality kiss their partner more often, uh, and, and I guess the idea behind this is that uh, the societal standards that are out there, um, that, that people who are poor are going to be more free to kiss, more, uh, uh, I, I don't know, what do you think it is? Less afraid of germs? Less... So I uh, was a, a school teacher before getting into, uh, finally getting my foot in the door into analytics and economics. And the reason I was um, teaching at a high school was because I was a math major and I could tell you I saw some interesting things working for a um, working for a school that served a lower socioeconomic um, um, population and so I did see some trends where um, you had a lot of inappropriate touching and kissing uh, where we had to stop intervene um, make sure that wasn't but it seemed like they were more interested in in that or relationships and they were interested in learning mathematics or science. And um, a lot of that could be that, um, I don't know, it could be maybe the parents are just trying to make ends meet. They're, they're just glad that their kids are going to school as opposed to maybe a higher income uh, household where the parents are more on top and the kids are more um, influenced, have a maybe have a stronger sort of mentors know the um, what's have a plan looking at what their parents did and what it takes to get there, uh, and so their priorities aren't relationships. Their priorities are uh, you know GPA getting to a good school, which leads into a better job, and so I, I do see that. Also, um, I think that there's vast differences in culture. I know that I could say that um, maybe more Latin American cultures tend to sort of be uh, more feely and touchy uh, versus um, other cultures. Uh, even in Europe, I know that the people in the UK, maybe Germany, maybe... Uh, those type of cultures don't really like touching and feeling and hugging as much as the um, would say the the romance uh, countries, uh, you know your your Latin-based countries, um, Portugal, Spain, France, um, even Romania, and I know that out of experience also with uh, shaking hands with people from the UK or Germany versus hugging and having my friend kiss me on the cheek from Romania. Uh, so I find it awkward, but I, <laughs> maybe I'm right in the middle being, being an American where I'm American with a, with a Hispanic, uh, background. So, um, so I'm probably right in the middle where you could hug me, but eh, don't, don't kiss me. But anyway, so it, it does differ from, uh, vastly within cultures, but I do see a correlation from my own experiences, uh, between, uh, higher income versus lower income levels. So uh, I have a little section here, an excerpt here. I think this is the, actually the crux of their, their argument, or their explanation. Uh, individuals kiss their partner more in countries where resource competition is likely to be more intense, which may play an important role in maintaining long-term stable pair bonds in certain types of harsh environments. So interesting. Very oh my God, that's so awesome. So I mean, you get closer to people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. More attached So income inequality breeds competition, and competition breeds this need to form some sort of more uh, um, stronger bond with people, and so therefore we reach out and kiss each other. Huh? Interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting. And I did. I was thinking about this while we were uh, discussing this topic, 
And uh, it's interesting though, because it doesn't necessarily translate to divorce rates. So they did mention a couple times that uh, it increases the bond when you're kissing, right? But you see higher divorce rates in lower income groups within our country. Hmm. And so it's, it's kind of an interesting you know, paradox there where maybe they're strengthening the bonds, but it doesn't translate to whether or not they're going to stay together. They're kissing too much. They're, they want to kiss their girlfriend and their girlfriend's sister. Oh, sorry, inappropriate, but... <laughs> we said irreverent analytics. Well, Staying true to the brand. One last question I had about this article. So they, they, they highlighted that they're, uh, they're predicting the variation in mouth-to-mouth kissing. What are the kinds of kissing do you think they studied? You don't want to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not going to go there this time. <laughs> we so, need more white claw for that one. So I, I, I do have an uncle, uh, and I'm glad our viewers don't know who I am. Otherwise, they'll probably go research who my uncle is. But uh, I do have a family member who uh, was telling me when I was in middle school, uh, make sure I get a, a good-looking girlfriend soon and uh, stay with her. Uh, because of something about competition, or it, so it kind of goes back to, to what you said, and uh, that's the only way I could sort of connect my personal experiences with what you said. It's like you know, I wonder if, if that had to do with with competition because I, it was a small town. He's like, so it's it's almost like, well, make sure you 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 know, hook up with them early uh, before someone else does, and so it's and and so it's it goes back to like wrong priorities you know uh priorities is not uh was not in the right place mm. yeah as a, a, for my for my dear question is though if uncle. we're all just out here trying to maximize utility then what priority is wrong <laughs> <laughs> well I how mean, romantic yeah, exactly. <laughs> i mean you could also say that maybe some people are eyeing that certain person because of a status so I don't know. Maybe this is a totally different trend or conversation or topic, but then there, then there's that as well, right? Um, but anyway, very interesting, Stephen. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I yeah, love sure. I love these uh, out of the box sort of weird analytics that do have strong correlations behind them. And we have more for you. And stay tuned for our topic next month as we give you a macroeconomic update, financial update, industrial update, and something fun and interesting. And as our dear Juliana says, <laughs> sorry, I was going to call you Jessica. You yeah. do look like a Jessica. Has anybody ever told you you look like a Jessica? This is a podcast. They don't know what I look like. Oh, okay. Well... <laughs> You sound, I have not gotten that. Well, you sound like a Jessica. Why, well, thank you. <laughs> so, I get that all the time. As our dear Jessica says. <laughs> this has been the AIA Buzzworthy Analytics Podcast. Thank you guys for joining us, and be sure to tune in next month when we cover the same stuff plus some extra fun stuff. Yes! <laughs>